welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Every success story is a tale of constant adaption, revision, and change. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we are going a little bit deeper into the homebrew side of things. We are going to talk a little bit about heirloom gear, heirloom items, items that grow with your character. Yeah, this is something that I've wanted to do for a while, and this actually comes way, way back. The first game I encountered this kind of concept in was a game called Kingsfield two which actually i guess was kingsfield three because the initial kingsfield was released in japan only so it's kind of got that whole final fantasy thing and we'll talk about more kingsfield later but at this point you're given a sword at the start of the game and the sword actually levels with the character you actually had to use the sword to level it but as the sword grew in strength you were able to do obviously more one the sword got stronger and you're able to perform more magic things like that and for me that always struck me as a really elegant way to increase your gear so you're not always you know breaking open chests or buying new things or something like that but something that was intrinsic to the character that grew with the character yeah and it lends itself well especially in video games to games where it doesn't make sense to put a vendor there so a game like dante's inferno yeah. where what you're doing is you're collecting the souls you're reaping the souls and you using the souls to unlock elements of your talent tree whether it's on the light yeah, side yeah dante's inferno was a very well done game it's, it's been a hot minute it's currently since on I've game pass it. for free gotcha. oh i i have it i own it Oh, oh, okay, great. I owned it for the 360, <laughs> but not for the new Xbox One system I have. So it's like, well, you can, and this is for everyone out there. If you have the 360 version, stick it in your Xbox One, and your emulator will download the 360 version into your 360 emulator on your Xbox One. I was completely unaware of this. Holy crap! Yeah, I have so many games I would have purchased over. You know, like I don't want to purchase this again. That I really, damn. Okay, well, good to know. Okay, now I got to find my library. <laughs> <laughs> anyway but anyway we're not, yes we're not an xbox podcast we are a ttrpg podcast so let's right. talk about our ttrpgs well again they do interlink because again inspirations wherever you find it but also these heirloom weapons as we are calling them are good for more thematic games if you're using the milestone leveling system versus just a straight xp number that's a really good way to kind of tick that off as well you can level your character and your gear close to the same time or maybe you could have it staggered even if you wanted to do that so these are going to be more thematic it's going to take a bit more forethought for the dm to build this into their game systems as the points of why the gear is there how and when it's going to level up and the actual mechanics but if you can it really ties into the story and theme really well versus just having random plus one greatsword. Yeah, because the iconic heirloom item, if you will, moment that I think of when I think about media, when I think about especially cinema, is that scene in A New Hope where Obi-Wan has saved Luke from the Tusken Raiders and brings him back to his house. And this was your father's lightsaber. Yeah, that's a great moment. And lightsabers, as we will touch on, would be a great thing to do one of these kind of growing modular type weapons. And another example that I would draw in, at least as a baseline, not necessarily as an example that would carry through an entire campaign, would be from the Disney animated film Mulan, where she takes her father's armor and takes her father's sword and runs off to join the army. So the sword and the armor 
have a very strong sentimental value to them. And so it doesn't make sense for that character if Mulan were a D&D campaign instead of a movie. It wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for Mulan to cast off her father's armor the first time a plus one suit of full plate showed up. Right. Other good examples would be something like Excalibur or like a, a religious relic of some sort or even religious mm-hmm. armor. You know, I mean, if you like stumbled across, you got Joan of Arc's plate armor, you know, so you're going to sit there and walk through or if you pick up Excalibur or something like that. These things, these weapons of legend that have a life of their own almost, but because they've been used and they've seen so much battle, that's where their power comes from. That concept of it's a great sword not because the person who wielded it was particularly great but the sword itself or the item itself was great and so therefore it needs to see constant combat or constant you know strife or whatever and that would actually be a really interesting thing to explore is to take one of these artifacts from the dmg from the dungeon master's guide and scale it down to being a very baseline thing where by your actions, you awaken the weapon where it has been laying dormant for so long, its magic has basically turned off. Yeah. And as you level up, you unlock more and more aspects of it. That so where whenever you reach, say, 15th level, that's whenever you unlock the last little bit. That's when that consciousness that is latent in all of these artifacts, the sentience that's when it comes back online and you get the full weapon. Yes. And you did bring up like a consciousness or sentient weapon. And we've touched on these once or twice as well, but sentient weapons are obviously going to gain and level and become more powerful. And at one point they can almost act as a familiar. And I've talked about, Oh, I forget the name of the Mercedes lack book, but there's a whole series where the mage actually has a sword called need and the sword is her familiar which is kind of a cool concept. Yeah. So some other just sort of tropes that you can borrow from for a basis for your heirloom item. An obvious one is a nobleman fighter goes out on a quest wearing his family's ancestral armor. Yeah. I mean, that's a fairly common trope. You know? Right. A frontier town that has an annual archery competition and the champion wields the magical bow used by the town's founder. Gotcha. Or maybe you get, you know, Robin Hood's bow or something along those lines. Yeah, that'd be perfect. Well, yeah, that would be the sort of theme that you would get. Yes. And so this bow retains the knowledge of all of its previous wielders. And so it the bow itself grows as it passes from hand to hand to hand. Oh, I would love that. Yeah, that, that would just make a great story to write out. And again, a lot of these things are going to be a more thematic, story-driven type game versus just a modular Hey, I threw some monsters on the table this week. Let's go raffle stomp them. Yeah, there has to be a certain amount of progression involved (laughs) in this. These are not for a one-off campaign. Definitely. uh, For a one-off game session. And another object, this taking some inspiration from Stormlight Archive, Soldier grabbed this spear off of the battlefield because it was the only weapon at hand, and they used it to fight off all of the enemies and save themselves. And so they're going to keep it until it breaks or they do. Awesome. And little did I know, it's the Spear of Longinus. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about some different types of heirloom gear. Okay. I have it sort of broken down into three categories. The first one is going to be what I'm just calling heirlooms. So they passively grow with you. This is, I've played a lot of World of Warcraft. There were heirloom 
gear pieces that you could get that would give you experience bonuses and they would scale with your character to help you whenever you created a new character, get that new character to max level faster. Yeah. And so going back and referencing, like I said, Kingsfield 2, you had the Moonlight Great Sword. And at the time you get it, the sword's broken and you have to go, but it was handed down. It was your father's sword and you got to repair it. And like I said, you got to level it. And it's really kind of a neat thing I discovered as I was doing research for this, that the uh, studio that made the Kingsfield series later went on and made a small little unknown series called Dark Souls. <laughs> and so if you actually come across a Moonlight Sword in Dark Souls, it's a direct reference to this sword I'm speaking of from the Kingsfield series, because that's actually where it all started from. So these heirloom items that passively gain levels as you level, all you have to do to improve them is survive to gain another level. Simply the fact that you level up is going to increase the bonuses that these items give. That is one way to do it, yes. Another way I've seen work with these weapons is that the heirloom weapon themselves have a small XP pool and they either get a mirror of what XP you've earned or a piece of the XP you've earned while you're wielding the weapon. So if you're not particularly wielding that weapon or that gear, then it won't level. But the more you use it, then it will level with you. But if you have it like in your bag of holding, waiting till it's going to get strong, it's not because it's not being actively used. Right. And that is a decent way to do it. It requires a little more bookkeeping, but yeah, that would also be a good way to do it. And these are ideal for simple laid back games, for games where you don't really want to, you know, take a whole lot of time to get all number crunchy and try and figure out how am I going to get this axe from just a basic little magic axe into this god mode slayer of demons, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, if you're just trying to do a quick game, if you have kids and you're trying to get them into tabletop gaming, this might be kind of a good way to start them. If they're not quite mature enough or comfortable enough to juggle gear, then their gear will just grow with them. And that's way they can get used to role-playing or playing on the table or working with other party members. It just kind of takes one thing off of the I've got to manage things list. So it does simplify the game a little bit. Yeah. The second option would be modular. So weapons that improve as you contribute to them. This would be akin to the, again, going back to World of Warcraft, the artifact weapon system that they implemented in the Legion expansion of World of Warcraft, right. where you finally got to get all of these weapons of lore and fight with them for the entire expansion, and then they take them away from you at the end because they're lame. Boo. But some other examples would be the Materia system that is implemented in Final Fantasy VII or some of the weapon skill trees in games like Dante's Inferno that we mentioned. Gotcha. And the materia system for Final Fantasy VII actually becomes a great blend of this heirloom and modular type because your materia themselves, again, as you have it equipped in your weapon, it does change your weapon and how that's going to work. You can collect them and switch them out. But your materia itself does grow and increases in power the more it is used. So again, if your materia is equipped and it's an equipment being used, it does grow in power. Eventually you get access to better and larger spells. And eventually it can produce more materia of its own. It kind of does like this weird asexual division split type thing for an inanimate object. <laughs> Never fully understood that, but it's magic. So, so the materia itself does grow in power as it's used as well as 
being a modular piece to your gear to give extra benefits, defenses, attack power, etc. Not having actually played Final Fantasy VII, I understood that the Materia system exists, and I yeah. understand kind of how it works, but I never actually got far enough into it to actually start using the Materia system. I think I got out of that initial level where you're fighting your way out of whatever that area is that where you start, and I got to the bar, and that's as far as I got. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It, okay. It just it just didn't click with me. It just the way that the game mechanics worked, it just didn't click with me. It depending on the system, the mechanics were a little wonky. So Ian's played about ten minutes of Final Fantasy VII, boys and girls. No, I think the material system, as far as game development, was an absolute masterstroke. It is extremely well done. It is why Final Fantasy VII is my number two favorite Final Fantasy, right behind Final Fantasy One. I'm a Final Fantasy two slash four. Yeah, I, and I, that's on my that's on my to playlist still which i need right. to need to work on that but you could also have this modular system be kind of like the witcher at least in the show because i have all of the witcher games on my pc i haven't had a chance to play any of them yet <laughs> um it's this weird thing called adult life you just run out of time but in the show, Geralt's sword grows with him. You can see different elements change as the story goes on. The most obvious one being the addition of Renfri's brooch to the cross guard of his sword after that first episode. And so this would be for something a little more crunchy, a little more of a survival game sort of thing where you're having to pick and scrounge and you're finding the best parts to combine together into your weapon. I like that. And I think, like you said, something crunchy or that could lead to like a post-apocalyptic type game. Like if you wanted to roll something Fallout-esque. I know there's a lot of Mad Max Fallout post-apocalyptic or even something very steampunky would lend itself to this where you could, oh, yeah. you know, pop out cogs and put in a better cog, you know, maybe like upgrade to brass or have like a steam powered whatever, you know, turn your sword into some sort of weird jackhammer type thing. That's a chainsword, obviously. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> why, why did I think of chainsword? Jeez. Something like Badlands, um, I believe it's yeah. Borderlands. Borderlands. There we go. Yes. There we one. go. And again, we are dipping a bit more into video games for inspiration on this one and stories because you see it in these systems a little bit more though again very very workable for the tabletop well because it's so much easier to do it in a video it game. is because the mass because all it is is it's another little bite of data yeah and you can make your base item where you can just swap out things into slots there's right. no paperwork involved in doing it in a video game yes whereas there is a certain <laughs> amount of behind the scenes accounting that you have to do in order to really make a modular system really fully fleshed in a ttrpg absolutely and as we have mentioned this modular system is ideal for crunchy gamers and for min maxers so the people who want to squeeze every drop of advantage that they can out of an item exactly. so they're going to go out of their way to find that best in slot add-on that they can put on their weapon to give them the biggest bonus for their play style that they can get. And even to a point, and again, as we talk to something like the lightsabers with the caber crystals, you know, you might want to keep different artifacts or crystals that might change your weapon at any given point. So while your weapon might be growing, maybe at some point you can pick up, again, close to your materia system. So now your sword's able to deal some sort of 
elemental damage or magical type damage. And so you can switch out which type it is by how you prep it before battle. So maybe if you take a long rest, you can make a modification for your sword. So one day it deals fire damage and after the next long rest, it deals cold damage, depending on what kind of enemies or foes you're planning on facing. Yeah, and I played a little bit of SOTOR, Star Wars The Old Republic. And in that game, you have the lightsabers and your lightsaber handle has a certain amount of base stat to it, but you have a kyber crystal slot where the biggest upgrades to your lightsaber are not from replacing the lightsaber, it's from replacing the crystal. And so you would be replacing that crystal as you progressed, and you would just find a hilt that would give you the base bonus that you were looking for, whether it was a strength bonus or an agility bonus or what have you. And you would just replace that kyber crystal to increase your damage, to increase your other stats. At least I think that's how it was. It's been a long time since I played SOTOR. So I may be misremembering that, but that's how I remember it. That sounds about correct. I think they had a similar system. I didn't play SOTOR, but I played Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic 2 by Bioware. And if I recall, they had a similar aspect, not quite as in depth, but a similar aspect to their gear. Yes. And then the third category of these heirloom weapons are what are called legacy items. And I'm pulling this directly from third edition because they had these legacy items in third edition. They had two whole books based around these legacy weapons. One of them was called Weapons of Legacy, and the other one was called The Tome of Battle, Book of the Nine Swords. And the Book of Nine Swords added additional stuff. It added prestige classes based around your legacy weapon. It added fighting styles and maneuvers that you could learn based around your legacy weapon. And they both added feats based on having your legacy weapon and enhancing your legacy weapon. And so these were individual weapons that they had basically four tiers. You had your base, which would be just a basic plus one that had this hint that there was more to unlock. And then once you figured out what it was, you know, through an identify spell or a history check or whatever method that you would use, you would learn the different rituals that you would have to perform to unlock the different levels of the weapon. You had a least a lesser and a greater legacy effect that you would get. And least you could unlock that at fifth level, lesser you could unlock at 11th level, and greater you could unlock at 17th level. And the weapons also had just a passive, I don't want to really say passive, but at each level they would have a different secondary ability that you could unlock. You have to perform a small ritual and you have to pay a personal cost in order to unlock them. Some of them were you have to take a permanent minus one to a saving throw or you have to take a permanent minus two to your max hit points to unlock that next level. But you couldn't unlock levels on your weapon past the legacy level that you had already unlocked with the big rituals. So once you unlocked your least at level five, you could only get your passive levels up to level 10. You couldn't unlock that level 11 thing until you did your lesser ritual at level 11 in order to unlock the next set of stuff. And then you could go up to level 16 and then you had to do that last one in order to fully unlock the weapon on the legacy side. And then it would continue to finish leveling out to level 20 with you. Gotcha. 
So yeah, you kind of had to finish like all the slots in each ritual level to, to get to the next one, which makes sense. And doing something like that, particularly with the personal cost, would be a great way to do just like a hidden cursed weapon. So maybe like it's cursed, but it's not like outright cursed. Like as soon as you pick it up, it does something bad, but maybe it slowly works and changes your character. Referencing WoW again, but Frostmourne's a great idea of that, where it kind of slowly corrupted Arthas, that weapon that slowly changes your character's alignment, possibly maybe improves your character's alignment. Maybe it's a redemption weapon, which could be something as well that you have to do so many good things for the weapon or gear to grow and strength and so it pulls you from a more of an evil alignment to a more good alignment you could take this either way which would be a lot of fun oh yeah and we talked a little bit about this prospect a while back i think it was when we were doing our episodes on the nine hells of a paladin who has the soul of an arinius trapped in their great sword yes and their great sword is a sentient weapon and it would be this legacy weapon and as they level their whole purpose for using this weapon is the redemption of this angel that is trapped within the sword and then at level 20 whenever you finally finish everything you have successfully redeemed this angel and so it is no longer an Irenaeus it emerges from the sword as a diva and you finish your arc by taking this fallen angel and redeeming them and allowing them to return to the heavens that would be a great storyline and again, all of these legacy weapons from third edition, they all had this story behind them. They all had this background to them that you would learn as you grew with the weapon, as you learned what rituals you had to perform in order to unlock the weapon. So you would get this intrinsic knowledge of what this weapon had been through and how it would relate to your character. And you, as a DM, you could pick and choose from all of the weapons available. You could say, okay, this is the story arc that this character wants to have. So I'm going to pick this weapon and give it to them. And so now this weapon soft railroads them on their course because now they are going to be working not just on the story that they want to pursue for their character, but they're also working on this story to unlock their weapon because the weapon gives them an incentive to stay on that course. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, in the concept of trying to redeem this Sereris, if those rituals were maybe directly tied to righting the wrongs that the Sereris committed as they fell. So, you know, restoring a family, restoring, you know, just writing general wrongs. I think that that would make an extremely compelling story for the table. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah. And these legacy weapons are ideal for players who want a ton of role play. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, these so, are definitely role play weapons. Oh, these are such role play heavy, great story weapons to use at your table. Yeah. But we've been talking a lot about weapons and a little bit about armor because armor can go on the same thing. But these heirloom items don't have to be weapons or armor. Some of the other options that I was brainstorming, I came up with a bard's musical instrument. Yeah, that would be an ideal heirloom item. And then, you know, as you gain bard levels with it and as you used it, you would be able to gain, say, bonuses to your bardic spells or you would get access to an extra cantrip or you would get access to an extra spell slot a day or you'd be able to say on a short rest, you could roll bardic inspiration die and recover that many spell levels worth of spell slots. 
know, kind of like the arcane like recovery feature of a wizard. I like that. One thing I would throw in is maybe do like expertise or double proficiency in your skill performance checks. Your instrument knows how to play itself. You already get a certain number of skills that you can take expertise in as a bard in fifth edition but yeah making it so that your instrument can play itself so that you can have your instrument accompany you while you play another instrument to give you a bonus on your performance checks that would be awesome you'd be a one-man band yeah that'd be great poco (laughs) Poco will never die die. (laughs) (laughs) oh butters we love Butters. butters so another option would be like a spellcaster's focus So say like a druid's staff or a wizard's scrying orb or something along those lines, or potentially like a spell component pouch. I could definitely see like a sorcerer has one of their parents who also was a sorcerer has their spell component pouch that they used whenever they were an adventurer in their youth. And so it has the various magics instilled within it, but because they haven't used it in a long time because they settled down and had a family and all of that stuff, the magics have gotten sort of diminished. And so as you use it, as you're leveling your sorcerer, just the continual use of it starts to reawaken that magic. I like that. And with that, I would tie it to where it gives you access to maybe more or different meta magics. Yeah. Maybe something like as you go, you have extend spell or maximize spell or something like that as your spells start to resonate with your heirloom. And I would also make that dependent on what type of sorcerer you are, because a divine soul sorcerer is going to have a different arsenal, if you will, than a wild magic sorcerer. You know, make sure that you tailor your item to the subclass. Yes, I was going to say something that'd be really, really neat would be if the spell pouch somehow gave a little bit of control to a wild magic sorcerer. So it maybe that one point they could re-roll a wild magic surge on a table. So if they didn't like what they got, they could try to re-roll it. Maybe okay. have to take the second roll or, you know, eventually if they got or just the roll, next it, level, roll it twice and then you get to pick which pick, result you want to use. Right. And, you know, maybe at max level, they can control their wild magic and they can just pick off the list of what they want to do. And it's a free spell. They have to cast it, but they can cast anything on that list. Okay. You know, at max level, that'd be kind of cool. Another option would be a token that a warlock receives from their patron. The obvious iteration of this would be a Hexblade's weapon. Yes. But something like the genie pact, you know, your lamp or your ring or whatever it is that you're using as your focus and there is the uh was it the pact of the talisman i think is one of the newer ones where it is literally a gem or or a trinket that is the focus for your power whether it is you know an entity that is trapped within or whether it's an entity that's using it to communicate or whether it is a magic item that has attained sentience you know, there's a whole slew of different variations that you could go on that. Yeah. But that would also be something that would benefit from being a legacy item. Very much so. And again, with this, you could tie in your different Eldritch Blast invocations. As a DM, if you take this in mind, and again, keep your player's class in mind, you can definitely tailor this to your players. So again, you can give them extra spell slots. You can give them access to different invocations, or maybe you can remove invocations from them because they have not, you know, earned that ability from their patron yet i mean 
it's homebrew. You're the DM. Within reason, you can work with these quite a bit and tie that into, well, here's your heirloom item or your modular item, and you have to work with your item to get these things. These can be some of your downtime things as well. Like I said, as we're studying and working these rituals or whatnot for the thing, because I think one of the best representations of how leveling can be a little weird was the old Order of the Stick comic where they're in the middle of a battle and they just all suddenly leveled up. And so like, oh, look, I'm stronger, you know, and there was no transition or right. explanation of their training or anything. It was just like, ding, hey, look, I've got a bigger sword now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So this way you can use these and off time and you can make that transition between levels a little smoother. And it provides a good narrative source for unlocking your class features. Absolutely. So if you just want it to be a foil for your class features, you can do that too. This too can be done. Yes. But the last item that I wanted to mention, this is one that I have actually done personally, is a wizard's spellbook. Oh yeah, that's... I have a Conjuration Wizard from 3rd Edition. Her name is Joanna Silverstrife. And her spellbook is actually the Phylactery of a Lich. I like it. This was his backup spellbook and Phylactery. And for some magical hocus pocus reason, his consciousness went in, but his body never came out. And so that's why he was looking for an impressionable mind with magical talent to start grooming, basically, to make a sufficiently powerful conjurer to finish the spell to get him out of his phylactery. I'm not saying that's Tom Riddle's diary, but... (laughs) It is kind of Tom Riddle's diary. Um, (laughs) But the sentience within the spell book acts as her mentor. This is her teacher. This is her magical tutor. And as she gains levels, he deems her worthy of higher level spells. So she doesn't have to seek out spells to put into her spell book. What happens is the glamour that he has over the spell book, once she reaches certain levels, turns off so that she can actually read the spells. Oh, that's a great mechanic. I like that. Especially since in third edition, whenever you did a spell school focus, it was an optional thing. When you focused in one spell school, you automatically got excluded from two other spell schools. So Right. What's the two so, or one? Two. Two. Okay. So she focused into Conjuration and she got locked out of, I think it was Illusion and Enchantment. Probably. That sounds... I think those are the those are the two yeah. that I picked. Because you got to pick. Did you get to pick? Yeah. Okay. Because I know in three point five it was a direct. Like I said, I thought it was a one to one. So like it was it was either it was either enchantment or divination, but the other one was definitely illusion. Okay. And I did that because it is an illusion over the pages, and so because she can't cast illusion spells, she doesn't have any opportunity to see through the illusion. Okay. Yeah. No. That that works story wise. Perfect. So she can't cheat and use magic to look ahead in the book. Gotcha. She to, to get, get to access to spells that she hasn't, quote unquote, earned the right to use. Gotcha. But that was how I used a spell book as an heirloom item in third edition. Okay. All right. So heirloom items. How do we build them? Concrete uh, and rubble. <laughs> I don't know. Roll a smithing skill. Uh, yeah. Crafting checks. Yeah. So as we mentioned all of these heirloom items should be tailored to the character that you're giving them to. You don't want to really just start handing out generic heirloom items, and you don't want to hand out an heirloom item that doesn't fit their character. For instance, you don't want to hand a great sword that is going to eventually become a holy avenger to a rogue. To a monk or a rogue, yeah. And again, when we talk about these heirloom items, this is the initial challenge, is it 
will take a bit of forethought and planning from the DM. That said, if you as a DM are willing to put in the effort and energy, you get something kind of cool out of it. You do. So just going basically off of what we're calling the heirloom category, the passive leveling ones, the way that I go about doing it, this is by far the easiest of the three to get into. So if you're wanting to just try getting your feet wet, the heirlooms are the easiest ones to try and do. I was able to knock this one out in like three minutes. And as you get more comfortable with it, it'll come faster and then you will be able to expand on this to get more personalized, more in-depth things. So because 5e has the proficiency bonus, I find it easiest to base the level ups of your item on the levels when you would get a proficiency bonus improvement. So you start off with a basic item at first level. It would do something like it can replicate the effects of a cantrip. So you can use it for dancing lights or mage hand or thaumaturgy or something along those lines. Or it mimics the effects of a common magic item. So something like a cloak of billowing or an armor of gleaming. Something that is intrinsically magical that you can tell is magical but doesn't really have any inherent bonus to it. Or it can be made from a special material like adamantine or mithril. That is the track that I went on for my example item that I'm going to get to here in a minute. But then you unlock a new bonus at 5th, 9th, 13th, 17th level, and maybe at 20th level too. I like throwing a capstone at 20th level because not many people get to 20th level. Unless you just start there, but yeah. Unless you just start there, or if you start at like 15th level and go 15 to 20. Yeah, 20th level is kind of special. It takes a long time to it get really that does. many experience points. It really, really does. Um, I think it's 355,000 experience points to hit level 20. I, I think gotta, that's I, what the number is. I have to count that out in Goblins one day. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it gives it in the in the player's handbook. Does it? How many because, level 1 because, goblins you have to kill? Oh, how many level 1 goblins you have to kill? Uh, yeah, that's why I said I need to count that experience in level 1 goblins. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we're getting greatly off track here. Yes. So the example item that I made, I'm calling it the Marquis Mithril Full Plate. So in medieval terminology, a Marquis was a noble who controlled a march, which would be the territories on the border of a monarch's holdings. Right. They were like a lord with extra responsibilities. They were technically of equal rank to a count, but whenever they were both in the same room, the Marquis was slightly higher than the count because it was a more prestigious, more important position. Correct. Because they were the first line of defense against outside threats. Right. So this would be a suit of armor that would be granted by a monarch to their marquee as a sign of their appreciation for their service in protecting the borders. Yes. This might be something as you got your marquiship or your land grant or whatever, you'd get this with that. Possibly. Yeah. Or this would be something where, you know, if you wanted to have a character with a noble background, this would be a starting level one fighter item. Perfect. Yes, absolutely. You get to wear daddy's armor whenever you go off on (laughs) because maybe the family's holding used to be on the border and the borders have since expanded. And so they're not on the border anymore. And so now they don't need to have this armor sitting around collecting dust. Yeah. I like it. So at first level, it's just mithril full plate. Mithril armor per the DMG. The benefits that it imparts are it doesn't impose disadvantage on stealth checks and it has no minimum strength requirement. So you don't have to have that 15 strength in order to wear this full plate. 
and you don't take disadvantage on your dexterity stealth ability checks whenever you're trying to sneak around. Nice and light. I like it. This would make it possible for you to have a dex-based fighter in full plate. I like it. Which could be kind of beneficial, especially early on, because it's hard to hit an AC of 18 (laughs) using your dex bonus at first level. Right. So at fifth level, you get reinforced, so it becomes plus one mithril full plate. You just get a magical plus one bonus. Okay. At ninth level, resistant, you gain the magic resistance feature. So you get advantage on saving throws versus spells and other magical effects. I like it. 13th level, buttressed it becomes plus two Mithril Full Plate. So its defensive bonus just beefs up. Um, At 17th level, spell turning, spell attacks that are targeting you are made with disadvantage. So not only do you get advantage on saving throws on spells, but spells that specifically target you are made at disadvantage. Okay. And then at 20th level, it becomes plus three Mithril Full Plate. I like it. And that's super simple, but it gives you very real concrete bonuses each time it improves. Right. And getting that extra spell attack save will go a long way. If I changed anything, I might. By 20th level, you probably want something maybe a little closer to a plus four or maybe get like an extra AC bonus to your stuff. Maybe it hardens over time or something. But I mean, that's all flavor. And that's all. I mean, a plus three armor in and of itself with nothing else added onto it is a very rare magic item. Okay. So that's where I'm getting at because it becomes a plus three with spell resistance, with spell turning. So it is a plus three armor where you have resistance to all magic just flat. Okay. So, I mean, you don't have resistance to the damage, but they have disadvantage to hit you and you have advantage to avoid. So if you were able to, you know, say multi-class into a rogue and get evasion. Oh yeah. So so that way, you know, whenever you succeed on your deck save, you completely negate the damage. I am invincible. Uh, You're a loony. (laughs) Yeah. No, I like that. And again, it sets you up. You've got some easily marked goals. Your points where your armor increases are definitely things to look forward to. So it's not like you're going to get bored of the armor. Like, well, I want something else instead. Even if it is story driven, I mean, there's that because your equipment still needs to be interesting to hold your player's interest generally. So no, I, I like this. It rounds out really well. And like you said, it's fairly easy just to kind of put your benchmarks in and go. Yeah. So whenever you're ready for... True insanity. You can go into the modular system. (laughs) So instead of setting benchmarks for the item, you set benchmarks for the quality of materials that you collect to improve your item. So this would allow you to basically impart the effects of other magic items onto your armor. Okay. You can make the items difficult to procure, so it becomes a quest to seek out the material that you need to improve your gear. So, like, say you know that you're going to be having to go and fight the big red dragon, so you're going to want to go and find something lesser that will allow you to put fire resistance on your gear this starts to have a little bit of a monster hunter feel with it yes absolutely which i like and again these don't necessarily have to be quote item drops off of monsters this can be something like artifacts after you've raided certain dungeons again going back to the whole witcher thing where you can add things physically to your weapon or your gear to build it up that way Yeah, and if you have an artificer in your party, this would be a great way for you to take a magic item that you looted that nobody really wants to use but has a useful effect on it 
and transfer that to somebody else's gear. Oh, that would be an amazing role for an artificer, yes. Yeah, so this will let you play into a little bit our uh, magic item creation guide that we released. God, it's been almost a year ago now. <laughs> it's been a while. It has been a little while. But one of the things that I would strongly encourage that what I would put as a hard requirement is part of the magic of improving your gear is the feat of strength or the feat of cutting involved in collecting the material to improve it. So you can't just walk into a shop and buy an item to improve your gear. You have to actually collect the material yourself. I could see that. Or if you could buy the item, it's got to be like stupid expensive because people that would sell this kind of item would know what its ability could be for. It could be used for that kind of thing. It should not be something easily gotten. Yeah. And if you wanted to do that, if you wanted to go that route where you could go and buy it, then you need to create an economy in your world for these adventurers who specifically go out and collect these materials. Right. Specifically to sell to artificers who are going to sell their services to apply these items to your items for an exorbitant fee. Yes. I would probably double or triple like if you were going to purchase spell components for like a scroll, I would probably put them double, triple or more of those just because, again, they're going to be hard to harvest and they are going to come at a premium. And, you know, then you're going to have some materials that are going to have a finite shelf life. And so those are the ones that you're either going to have to commission someone to go get you when you need it or just go and get it yourself because... This is not going to be something that's going to sit on the shelf because it's not shelf stable. Yeah, the eye of newt's only going to last for a day or two. Yeah. Unless you have some dry ice. <laughs> a bag of colding? Yes. For your <laughs> Critical Role fans? Oh my, yeah, we definitely need a bag of colding. That's awesome. And another thing, the bonus that you're going to get from the material is going to be tied to the challenge rating of the monster that you harvested the material from. Right. So you aren't going to get the same result from the hide of a red wormling that you are from an ancient adult red dragon. I would imagine not, no. Just because. Yeah. <laughs> That's just not how it works. It's dandy magic, just we'll throw dice at you. It's done. <laughs> and I would limit the number of quote-unquote upgrade slots that you can have in your gear. Personally, I would treat it like attunement slots. Okay. So you would get three slots to upgrade your gear across all of your gear. And this could be just a simple, these slots actually take up an attunement slot because then you can add two upgrades to a single piece of gear. It still counts as two upgrades. It still counts as two attunement slots, but you end up having this thematic item that has these two effects on it at the same time. No, that's a fair rule. I think that's a fair rule early on because again, as you get some of your higher level things, your attunement, the items you can attune to can start being kind of beefy. Early on that fits though. And so personally, I would start with just as a basic plus one magic item. The item has to have a certain quality to it in order to be upgraded. Right. And that comes back to the whole... Yeah, in third edition, you had the masterwork items that you had to have a certain quality of item as a base in order to enchant it. So that's where we're pulling that back to. Right. You can enchant like just a rusty butter knife. (laughs) So an example that I have, let's say we're starting off with a plus one shield. If you go and kill a displacer beast and then you band the outside of the shield with the tentacles from the displacer beast. So you have the little dangly bits hanging down off the bottom. 
it allows you to gain the benefits of a cloak of displacement on your shield. Okay. Um, that would be for a challenge rating three monster. Bump up to challenge rating five, you kill a bullet and you're able to replace the boss on your shield, giving you resistance to non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage. Yeah. Bump up to challenge rating eight. You kill a Hydra, and you impregnate the shield with the Hydra blood, and it gives you passive HP regeneration equal to your proficiency bonus. I love that one. So you just passively recover three hit points a turn. Just this little bit of passive healing. Yeah, no, I like that one a lot. At challenge rating 11, you kill a Bahir and you are able to rivet the hide of the Bahir to the front of the shield and you gain resistance to lightning damage. Okay. Challenge rating 15, you beat a Mummy Lord and you take some of the wrappings off of the Mummy Lord and use it as a wrapping around the grip of your shield. And now your shield, once prolonged rest, gives you the benefits of the Death Ward. I want the shield now. I have to have it. (laughs) (laughs) So that way, you know, the first time you get hit with an instant death effect, it negates it. Or the first time you get dropped to zero hit points, you drop to one hit point instead. I like it. And then the last one at CR 20, you kill an ancient white dragon and you replace the grip of the shield with a white dragon bone and gain immunity to cold. Okay, no, that sounds great. And again, that makes it very modular. Again, you're going to have to plan different things for how your characters are going to want to build the shield. You can definitely do different monsters, different elemental effects. If you want to put this much time into your world's magical economy, as it were, your players could have a lot of fun crafting various weapons it would be really interesting to see what your players could come up with that's half the fun as a dm a lot of times is just seeing how you know you can throw your players a few scraps and see what they can work out and more often than not they'll surprise you yeah and this is also something where what you can do is you just throw the monsters at your party see what your party decides to harvest if anything at the end of the fight and then you decide what these materials do when applied to the item after you know what you're working oh that'd be a great way to do it yeah you just make the materials thematic to what the monster is that they harvested them from right and to what purpose they're being applied i like that and if you like want to go extra difficulty and again this would be for the real hardcore dms and players but you could delve back into it's one of the things i kind of liked about second edition that never carried over a lot of people didn't like it but depending on how you killed specific monsters versus like bludgeoning magical damage how they attacked the monster the monster would drop different items or have different items available to loot and those tables again if you can find the old second edition monster manuals and dmgs and things like that you can find those tables and if you want to throw that in personally i think those are kind of fun so if you want to go hardcore and you think you know 5e is a little squishy you can definitely roll with that all right let's get into legacy weapons because legacy items are a bit more complicated than that because you have to incorporate this role play aspect to them correct they have rituals or feats of strength that you have to perform in order to unlock the primary legacy effects which then allow you to unlock the secondary effects yeah now again these legacy weapons are going to take a lot more story work for the dm while the modular weapons again the dm kind of has to have an idea of economy and what the items that way are going to do legacy this is going to be for very story driven games and so the dm's going to have to keep that in mind as they try to build these weapons up and as i mentioned there are two third edition books that i am aware of weapons of legacy and tome of battle the book of nine swords which have 
third edition legacy weapons complete with their story complete with their history and with their effects that you can go to and draw inspiration from and translate them into fifth edition weapons translate fairly easily from third to fifth edition mainly because there's not been a lot of change imposed on the attack system because a metal pokey stick system. is still a metal pokey stick yes no matter the edition yeah. <laughs> so one of the legacy weapons from the book of nine swords i just decided to go ahead and pull it out and run through it to give you an idea of what it does this one is called unfettered it's Baseline is a plus one greatsword. The story behind it is there was an elderly dwarf and a young Goliath who were slaves to these frost giants. The dwarf was the master of the forge and they had to work constantly to forge weapons and armor for the frost giants. And in secret, they created this weapon in the hopes that they would be able to win their freedom, fight their way out. They get almost done with it. The frost giants discover that they have it the foreman comes goes to smite these uh slaves of theirs who dared to craft a weapon to use against them the dwarf dies the goliath picks up the sword and cuts down the frost giant foreman and flees okay and then he ends up going off and becoming the leader of a goliath clan and they come back and they kill all the frost giants because as you do as you do because slavery is bad okay <laughs> and in his old age he's trying to figure out how he's going to pass on this sword what the legacy of this sword is going to be because this sword is an intrinsic part of him. And so he decides that he can't just give it to one of his captains because that will cause infighting and that will rip the clan apart. And so he says that he's going to go on a three-day journey into the wilderness to speak with the gods and get guidance. And while he's off in his travels, he comes across another swordsman who is also on a pilgrimage and they sit down and have a conversation and he realizes that this person is the heir to this weapon. And so he passes the weapon off to him and then he goes up into his mountain cave and lays down and falls asleep, never to awaken, so that he can rejoin his master. Finally freed from the shackles of slavery, because he's finally free of the mental anguish of having been enslaved on top of the physical bonds. Okay, good story so far. I'm and in. That's the story that you unlock as you unlock the levels of this weapon. Okay. So the least ritual that you have to perform at fifth level is you must single-handedly craft a weapon worth at least 10 gold without pausing for sleep or meals, though drinking water is allowed. I like it. And it's called Unchain the Mind. The lesser unbind the hand, you must slay a giant whose CR equals or exceeds your character level. Now, is that with party or single-handedly? It doesn't say single-handedly. Okay. But you have to slay this giant. I'm up for some giant killing. Let's do it. Um, and then at 17th level, the greater unshackle the soul. You must visit the final resting place of Kanithiak the Goliath, the Goliath who was the original wielder of this sword, a cave that lies high on the distant and treacherous mountain peak. Once there, 
you must meditate uninterrupted for 24 hours. No, I like the sword. It's, it's kind of cool. And again, it's got some great story to it. It definitely is compelling. As Ian mentioned, this is kind of a way to soft railroad your players or kind of keep them on track if they want to squirrel everywhere. This definitely pulls them back into storyline. Yeah. And so the passive effects that you get at fifth level, you gain the charging minotaur maneuver five times a day. So it basically allowed you to bull rush without provoking attacks of opportunity. And if you hit your target with your bull rush, you dealt 2d6 plus your strength modifier, bludgeoning damage to them and knocked them back five feet. Nice. At ninth level, you get a plus two bonus to your strength score while wielding the weapon, improved to a plus four at 13th level and a plus six at 17th level. At 10th level, you get the ability to cast Enlarge Person on yourself once a day. Because we want to embiggen everything. At 12th level, you can cast Meld into Stone on yourself once a day. And on the turn that you emerge from the stone, you get plus two to all of the attack rolls that you make with the weapon. That's a nice dwarven touch since there was a dwarf that was initially in on the creation of this as well. So I like they added that in. Yeah. At 16th level, when you are hit by a critical hit or a sneak attack... You have a 25% chance to negate all of the bonus damage turning it into a normal hit. Ooh. At 19th level, you can cast Stone Skin on yourself once a day. And at 20th level, you can transform the weapon into Mordenkainen's Sword, but it still uses your bonus to attack rolls, has a damage of 46 plus 5 plus your strength modifier on a hit. Nice. You can do it once a day and it lasts for 17 rounds and you can dismiss the magical effect of it as an interaction returning the blade to your hand or to your feet if your hands are full. So an interaction in 5th edition, that'd just be a bonus action? or a No, reaction? that is not even a bonus action. That is just, oh. you can do it. Okay, nice. Because I don't recall seeing interaction as a... Interaction is the one thing that you can do that doesn't take an action. So like okay. open a door Okay, perfect. Or quite famously, drink a flagon of mead. Yay. <laughs> or I think it's a tankard of ale or something. Gotcha. It is. You can drink a vessel full of alcoholic beverage. Okay. <laughs> that is what you can do as an interaction. I like but it. But like yell out to somebody or, you know, any of those very simple things that don't actually require an action. Perfect. So I do have a personal example that I have made of a legacy weapon based off of this sort of pattern that I made for fifth edition a while back. This is for a Storm Herald Barbarian character that I made for one shot that I had intended to have mature into a campaign that didn't get off the ground, but it's called the Stormcaller's Cudgel. The story behind this is that this barbarian is the son of a fisherman and this entity of the sea, you know, bestowed upon him this magic rock. He got touched by a noodly appendage. <laughs> and so he took this magic rock and he lashed it to the end of a handle and he turned it into a maul. And so he goes and smacky smacks things with it. As you do. As you do. And he's a Storm Herald Barbarian of the sea. So he's got the lightning damage aspects to it. Okay. So the least ritual was deliver a killing blow to three foes whose CR is at least your level in a single rage. Nice. And the unlock for that is critical hits deal triple damage while raging. Snazzy. That can do some damage. I like it. The lesser ritual is to swim to the floor of the open ocean and retrieve a stone no smaller than your head without any assistance from allies or magic. So you're free diving to the bottom of the ocean, picking up a rock and swimming back up with it. 
You are rolling so many athletics and constitution checks. So many. <laughs> the unlock for this one is you gain the effects of the water breathing and freedom of movement spells while swimming, and your swim speed becomes equal to your movement speed. Good deal. And then the greater is withstand the lightning breath of a blue or bronze dragon or the thunder breath of a sapphire dragon and then defeat that dragon in combat. Ooh. You must choose to fail your saving throws against the breath weapon each time you would be targeted by it, and you gain no benefits from any damage resistance or immunity when you fail. Damn. So you have to soak the full damage. Okay. I'm kind of getting a Maui feel from this. Like he's going to start singing your welcome here. <laughs> <laughs> and the unlock is you gain immunity to thunder damage and damage absorption for lightning damage. I like it. So when you're struck with lightning damage, you gain one temporary hit point per die of damage that the speller ability would normally deal. So you take no lightning damage and then you gain a number of temporary hit points. So if it was, say, let's use a lightning bolt as okay. an example, because I happen to know 3d10 off the top of my head. <laughs> strangely um, enough. <laughs> strangely enough. You get hit by a lightning bolt. It deals zero damage. You get three temporary hit points. Okay, good deal. And then the secondary abilities that would unlock at levels, provided that you unlocked the rituals necessary to access these. At first level, wild swings. So you score a critical hit on a 19 to 20, but you automatically miss on a 1 or 2. Good trade. So you expand on both ends. I like it. At 5th level, you get a plus 1 bonus to attack and damage rolls. Ninth level, your attacks deal an additional... 1d6 lightning damage okay 13th level is a plus two bonus 17th level your bonus damage increases to 2d6 and it can be either lightning or thunder and then at 20th level it's a plus three bonus so it is a fairly simple progression on the bottom end but it is a very concrete bonus that you get that fits with that sea storm herald barbarian feel while also giving you a very concrete mechanical advantage yeah, no, I like this a lot. I like the story behind it. I like the flavor you've added to this as far as, you know, story and text and making it compelling. I would play this. I want to run Mokwa next to this character. I think they would have fun together. Oh, Mokwa would be able to use this weapon, I think. Yeah, well, theoretically, yeah, I mean, he could. He wouldn't be able to unlock the first thing with the rage, but I think this character Mokwa could go shoulder to shoulder really well. Oh, I would be able to tinker with that in order to, yeah. to make again, it to where... And, and again, that's another thing where you have to make the item thematic to the character you're character, giving it to. Right. And for reference, Mokwa is my Goliath Storm Cleric, who is also a follower of Father Bear. Because yes. Father Bear is just freaking awesome. He really is. <laughs> All right. I think that brings us to the end of today. Yeah, it does wrap us up for today. This was a lot of fun. Again, this is not an easy thing or a terribly simple thing to bring to the table. But if you want to put out the effort and do the planning. Your players, I believe, would be amazingly appreciative. I think they would really, really enjoy it. It's a good mental exercise just for DMs who like world building on their own. I know a lot of our DMs tend to be writers either doing short stories or novels or things like that. This is a great way to kind of work out some writer's block or even add to your own stories. Kind of gives that whole mythic feel to your stories if you're going for that element. And it also gives your players buy-in into the world because they're invested now they have this item that is tied to the lore of your world that they have agency over whether or not it upgrades at the rate at which it upgrades and they get to facet their character around the upgrades in a way that is unique to them so that they can take a slightly different path 
to get the same outcome, but it result in a, from a role play standpoint, a very different character. Yes. So thank you everyone for listening today. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message over on our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at undercommontaste. You can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. That's where all of our write-ups go whenever we're done. We are also on YouTube. We're on Twitch. We're on TikTok, undercommontaste. Search us. You can find us. We're on Discord. We can find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Our March Madness will have started by the time this episode comes out. So keep your eyes peeled on our YouTube and our TikTok channels for the daily updates for our March Madness tournament results. We are also cross-posting that to our Twitter account. So if you want to find them, keep your eyes on our Twitter feed and find them there. Yeah, this is a good way to keep up to track your brackets. Some of these battles have been surprising. A lot of them have been interesting and fun. And thematically, they work out kind of like you would expect in a lot of ways. We've had some really gritty primal fights. We've had some sneaky, clever type fights. It's been definitely a learning adventure doing these. I've enjoyed it so far. Yeah, there have been some that have been much closer than I thought they would be. And there are some that have been far more one-sided than I thought they would be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, if you've found us for the first time, thank you. Welcome. You can find our podcast wherever you find your favorite podcast. As always, please give us a rate and review. This helps us increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week where we're going to be starting into the first episode on Arcadia. Oh, excellent. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73, or on DeviantArt at DeviantArt.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.